So Miles, I know it's been a whole week, but I am still thinking about Hyperstorm. Remind me, Jay? Jonathan Reed Richards. You know, Fantastic Four Wunderkind Franklin Richards alternate alternate timeline son with Rachel Summers. Herself the alternate timeline daughter of Scott Summers and Jean Grey via Phoenix-induced parthenogenesis. Wait, Hyperstorm was conceived via parthenogenesis? No, no, his mom was. Okay, right. And Hyperstorm's deal was... Power-mad interstellar dictator and interdimensional villain. Ah, just like Kang the Conqueror. Well, Kang's more of an interdimensional dictator. Is he still out there? Kang? As far as I know. Uh, No, Hyperstorm. Oh, well, no, no. Hyperstorm came over to the 616, and then the Fantastic Four eventually stopped him by teaming up with... The Avengers? Galactus. What?! I'm Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 347 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. Previously. There were mutants. Individuals born with the genetic gift that granted them amazing powers, but marked them as different as other from the superheroes around them. Nonetheless, one man, the telepathic Charles Xavier, believed that mutants should protect even a world that hated and feared them. And he thus founded the X-Men, young men and women who train and fight in service of that dream. Over the years, the X-Men's ranks have grown and shifted, and for now, they include three of their founding members, Cyclops, Phoenix, and Iceman, one under a different name, and someone who appears to be a fourth founding member, the alternate reality counterpart of Beast, disguised as his his regular version. More recent members of the team include Wolverine, Gambit, and former New Mutant Cannonball, and Bishop, a mutant police officer from a dark future who's now stuck in the present day of 1997. Now, in that future, it was generally known that the X-Men had all been mysteriously wiped out, And Bishop found a degraded century-old recording of Phoenix, that's Jean Grey, seeking help as a mysterious traitor killed the rest of the team, and finally her. Since then, he's sworn to find that traitor and save his heroes before they could be killed. Jean's recording and death haven't happened yet, but she's been through a lot recently. An immensely powerful psychic being named Onslaught pulled her into the astral plane, showed her the hypocrisy of both humanity and her mentor Professor X, and demanded that he join her in ruling the world. Jean wasn't interested in world domination, and instead raced back to her teammates, ideally to warn them, and hopefully to stop this Onslaught entity, which has been making tracks around the X-Line for a while. And we can put this off no longer. Jay... Here we are, here we are, at the official, unequivocal start of Onslaught. I was going to ask what I did to deserve this, but I think the answer is podcasting about the X-Men for seven years. We knew this was coming. We knew this was coming from the start. And I gotta say, so we've talked a lot of shit about Onslaught. The lead-in to Onslaught? The beginning of Onslaught? It's really good! It starts really solid. I mean, I think in some ways that's the tragedy of Onslaught. There's a really solid core concept. There are a couple solid core concepts, 
but so little cohesive planning that a crossover as big as this ends up ends up spiraling way out of control. And we're going to follow every twist and turn. Well, I guess just turns in one direction because it's a spiral of that spiral. There's a lot of it. We're not going to take as long with Onslaught as we did with Age of Apocalypse, but there's so much to dig into. And honestly, I'm really excited. I'm excited to see what works, what doesn't, what makes sense, what doesn't, and to try to spin a grand tapestry to cover all that is Onslaught, to make it as cohesive as possible, even if we have to kind of make some stuff up here and there. This is going to be fun. I am even more interested in looking at the role Onslaught is playing in the development of the Marvel Universe, because... It was chosen as the vehicle for a major, major event horizon in the development of not only the X-Line, but all of Marvel. And the ways that it leads into and plays that out are really interesting. Absolutely. And we'll talk so much more about that as we get to the end of Onslaught in some number of episodes. But yeah, the short version? Pretty much all the non-X stuff in the Marvel Universe got rebooted. Or at least the Avengers and Fantastic Four corners of it temporarily, until it didn't sell very well. Which brings us to Uncanny X-Men number 334, Dark Horizon. This issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Joe Matarera, inked by Tim Townsend, colored by Steve Busilato and Team Buse, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And before we get into anything Onslaught-related, I've really been wondering about, well, a lot of our name pronunciations, but especially that of Steve Busilato. And so I looked it up, and he has a helpful blog post. So, apparently that's one way of saying his name. His family always pronounced it Busilato. But after our current coverage, in 1998, he actually moved to a more standard Italian pronunciation of Bucciolato. He had been pronouncing Buse, uh, I guess it should technically be Buc, as Buse, his blog was called A Buse of Power. I'm not sure if he changed that part. But the short version, at this point, it was Busilato. In the present day, it's Bucciolato. So technically, whichever we say, if we forget, is correct in a certain way of looking at it. At least until 1998, I'm inclined to stick with the current version since that's what he uses these days. Bucciolato it is then. And as far as the team, well, uh, maybe we still call that Buse because that's what he called it then and I don't know that he ever changed the name. Makes sense to me. All of that aside, so we're not technically officially at the start of Onslaught yet. That'll be later this episode. But this might as well be. This just leads right into it and comes right out of Adjectiveless X-Men number 53, the issue where Jean gets pulled into the astral plane and talks to Onslaught, who's a big jerk to her. That's right, we're basically alternating very, very closely between Uncanny and Adjectiveless X-Men titles. Again, they're functionally the same series, and never more so than in this event. Each issue really does have its own identity, though. This issue is moody as fuck. It is all dark and ominous, and the tone is just nailed. That tone starts, however, with the Juggernaut, who has made his way from... Colorado to New York? Remember he had come out of a bunch of shadows to yell at Archangel and Psylocke before jumping out of their wall? Right, there was something very, very wrong and something in his memory that he couldn't get at. He said he knew who Onslaught was, but he couldn't remember. He, he couldn't get to that part of his mind. 
He's decided to meet up with not his hated stepbrother Charles, but instead Scott and Jean at the boathouse that they've shared since they got married. I guess he's too big for the porch, though, because he's currently waiting in the lake. Uh, I suppose when you're that invulnerable and don't need to breathe, you might as well. Oh, I assumed he just didn't want to deal with starting the inevitable fight with the X-Men. Uh, that may be true. And it does make sense that he's nervous. I mean, he's been through a lot. It was, I think, around a year's worth of issues before this that he first got knocked out of the sky, said the word onslaught, and passed out, right? Yeah, it's been a while. In fact, interesting note, that was the first bit of onslaught that was planned. The entire event came out of that scene. Yeah, there was an ex-writer's summit, or, well, maybe artists also, an ex-creator's summit after Age of Apocalypse, and Lobda was like, all right, check this out. The X-Men hear something, they go out, and they see the Juggernaut falling from the sky, and he just slams into the ground and slides, like, super far, and says the word Onslaught and passes out. And the other writers were like, whoa, who's Onslaught? And Lobda was like, I have no idea, but isn't that cool? And thus came this event. Thus came this event. We've talked before about how Lobdell's writing style is one of just sort of seeing where things go rather than planning it out ahead of time. Works sometimes, doesn't work other times. We will certainly talk a lot about how much this event does or doesn't work. I feel strongly that that's an approach very, very ill-suited to the level of coordination called for in an event like this. Yeah, yeah, spoiler. I think that's probably the conclusion we're going to come to. Yeah, like, there are ways and there are contexts in which that's fine, but on something like this, when you're having to coordinate across a universe with multiple creative teams through multiple editors, you can't just wing it and see how things unfold. That's that's not a feasible style of, of writing for something like this, because you're not just writing your own story. But this lead-up, before the rest of the Marvel Universe gets roped in, pretty solid. So it turns out Cyclops isn't at home. He's doing some nighttime training in the danger room. And I really appreciate that he thinks about how he doesn't like all this newfangled Shi'ar technology and is just training against a bunch of robots and spiked metal balls, just like he used to when he was a teenager in the Silver Age. I can see Cyclops being old school like that. Also, it's it's a good reminder that Charles Xavier should never, ever, ever have been responsible for teenagers. Seriously, like, I'm reminded of the castles in Super Mario Brothers. There are bars made of fireballs that rotate. There are, like, angry squares covered in spikes that fall on you. Who put those things there? Charles Xavier, apparently. Hmm, the big bad behind Bowser. I knew it. Well, anyway, the other half of the Boathouse residence, Jean Grey, Phoenix walks into Scott's session in a torn outfit still holding her gap bags from her shopping trip that was so rudely interrupted by Onslaught, and she tells Scott not only what happened, but that they really shouldn't talk to Professor X yet. Now, as you may recall, Onslaught showed her a lot of things about Professor X, but one of them was that he had had a crush on her in the Silver Age. It went back to X-Men number three, quotation about, you know, how can someone help but worry about the one he loves, which really unsettled Jean's trust in the professor. Now, she doesn't tell Cyclops about that. She makes the excuse that he's had a lot on his mind, they shouldn't worry him with this additional thing when she doesn't really know all the details of it, but it's clear that she's really lost a lot of her confidence in the professor. 
Somebody who is taking up the professor's time right now is Cannonball, the youngest and newest member of the X-Men, who, as we've complained about a million times, is written as way more of a newbie than he actually should be, having led X-Force and co-led the New Mutants for years, but we digress. That is kind of what he's talking to Professor Xavier about, though. He says that back on X-Force, he was confident, but especially ever since Wolverine recently got all messed up trying to save him, he worries that he's holding the team back. And Xavier has no patience for this. He lists off half a dozen ways that the world is fucked and essentially tells Sam, dude, your feelings don't matter in the face of all that. And he even talks shit about X-Force and how effective they are while he's at it. Yeah, he's not just straightforward and and you know he's not necessarily harsh here he's really gratuitously cruel he is yeah and remember sam has known professor x since his dad died since he was a teenager he has essentially grown up around this guy or at least around the memory and the shadow of this guy so this hurts but i don't know like I feel like we should talk about how appropriate sam's reaction here is of just quiet rage and walking out I'm thinking back to Executioner's song, when there's that amazing confrontation between Xavier and Sam, and Sam is talking about the way of the closed uh, fist and the open hand and justifying X-Force's more aggressive methods as being necessary to protect people. Like, Sam has stood up to the professor before, but I don't know that this is parallel to that. I don't think it is. This isn't a disagreement. This isn't an ideological opposition. This is treatment that I think would be profoundly, profoundly unsettling to anyone, let alone someone who had who was, was already feeling insecure about their place on the team. Well, Xavier isn't being a jerk entirely gratuitously. He's got a lot on his mind. No, it's still pretty gratuitous. Nonetheless. So first of all, he's wondering how Nate Gray managed to pull him physically out of the astral plane. Um, and he's thinking about that, and he's thinking that he couldn't do what he's planning without having experienced that, so maybe he really owes something to Nate. Yeah, that was a big deal in X-Man, Nate Gray's own series. Nate Gray hates Professor Xavier, and he actually thought he killed Xavier when he pulled Xavier physically out of the astral plane. Turns out he didn't, but that's all going to factor in quite a bit. Having dressed down one of his most earnest X-Men, Professor Xavier decides that he's going to keep it up, so he calls Cyclops in to tell him what a failure he is, and then vanishes into thin air. And a recording of Xavier, or maybe a PA message, basically tells Cyclops, Oh, psych, I'm just keeping you on your toes. But one of the things that works really well artistically here that I think Joe Matarera nails is Professor Xavier's face over the course of the various things he talks to Cyclops about. Like, he's grinning gratuitously, evilly, and cruelly in only the way that a manga-type artist like Matarera can draw, and then just suddenly looks terrified and begs Cyclops to be strong, not just for himself, but for all of them, before vanishing. So it's clear there is some major internal conflict going on with Chuck here. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Elsewhere, Beast is using his sciency equipment to try to figure out what's wrong with Wolverine, who, as you may recall, has devolved into someone with no visible nose who tries to lick people awake sometimes. And he's got his own font. That's never good. But it's not really working out, and it's not really working out in front of an audience. Storm and Iceman are watching, 
And remember, this isn't Beast. This is Dark Beast pretending to be Beast, and clearly in way over his head, as he says to himself. This is getting ridiculous. How much information did my other self have in his head? It is as if the X-Men looked to him for everything from battle scenarios, tech support, and medical evaluations to studying the legacy virus. I mean, yeah, who do the X-Men think this guy is? Super Doctor Astronaut Peter Corbeau? I love how consistently out of his depth Dark Beast is, and the extent to which his internal monologue has gone from I have this clever plan to maybe this wasn't the best plan to I'm not even supposed to be here today. I know, he's so hapless. This all went wrong for him immediately. Right, he's terrible, so I have no sympathy for him, but it's very funny. It is. Elsewhere, elsewhere in the mansion, Bishop is working on Cerebro. It was overloaded a couple issues ago, long story. And he's thinking about the fact that, wait a minute, Cerebro technology in the future is kind of the same as this. It hasn't advanced And that's been like a century, so what stops the development of mutant technology cold at this very point in history? One of the many, many things that just lends this air of, oh, something bad's gonna happen, oh, something bad's gonna happen, to this whole issue. Yeah, and I mean, it's not a big mystery. We know that in Bishop's timeline, the X-Men were killed around now, but it... it, it, it again just adds to that atmosphere of dread very, very nicely. I also really love the way that we're seeing Gambit and Bishop's friendship develop. Oh yeah, Gambit comes up here and they have a conversation about like, okay, that's weird. Bishop, you just had Mr. Sinister of all people show you that your Age of Apocalypse memories were real, but Xavier couldn't do so. Huh? I really love that friendship. Yeah, I I totally agree. Because it's sincere, and I think it's so sincere because it comes from a place of, of such conflict it's so adversarial honestly i started to mildly ship it kind of like it's almost like one of those uh one of those animes it's not like i like you remy baka anyway their budding friendship is is disrupted by the realization that something has happened to one of the underwater security cameras in the lake because of course there are underwater security cameras in the lake and the two of them head off to investigate and this page, I gotta give this page props, it is beautifully colored, and not just penciled and inked, also those, but colored, as they skim across the lake on this ridiculous glowing techno-skiff thingum, this like illuminating everything eerily with its techno-skiff lights, and Gambit looks into the water below them, and there's this barely visible juggernaut who just smashes the fuck out of everything, and he's impossibly huge in a way that Joe Matarera seems to love to draw as just everybody goes flying. Matarera can totally sell action scenes. So Juggernaut knocks out Bishop and Gambit, but instead of, you know, throwing them in the lake or anything, he takes them and deposits them on the porch of the lake house like a proud house cat for Jean Grey, who has just opened the door and said, look, see, you can tell that I am not here for bad things because I just knocked these guys out. I didn't hurt them badly. I didn't kill them. I need your help. Also, I thought maybe I'd teach you to hunt just in case. And then he coughs up a hairball on her feet, I assume. Aw, I feel like that's more of a Sabretooth thing. Oh yeah, yeah, good point. Do we know if Sabretooth gets hairballs? I bet he gets hairballs. I bet he does. You know, 
I'm calling it. It's canon. Sabretooth coughs up hairballs. In anyway, instead of demanding congratulatory pettings, he tells Jean a little bit about what's up. She is understandably skeptical. And so he takes off his telepathy-proof helmet, which he never does, to show just how sincere he is. And Jean says, okay, I'll help you, but follow me. We're going we're gonna to go somewhere out of the way. And she takes him down into the sewers under the mansion and into the only fully psi-shielded place on the estate. And that is the anti-Xenox chamber. Oh. Remember the Xenox? I do. Okay, so, listeners, you may recall, or you may not recall, fair enough, back in the Silver Age, sort of in the middle of the X-Men's Silver Age, Professor Xavier died. And everything sucked for a while, and the book was honestly not amazing then either, in my opinion. Turned out, that wasn't Xavier. Not only was everything rough, but we also got the false tease of Matoxa the Lava Man, one of the greatest injustices of the Silver Age. Yup. But it turned out, that wasn't Xavier that died. That was the changeling posing as Xavier as a favor to Xavier. Now, Charles Xavier had discovered that an alien race called the Xenox were planning to invade Earth. And he decided that the best way to deal with this was to fake his death, telling no one but Jean Grey whose psychic powers he flipped on at the time. And then to go hide in a locked room under his mansion and think real hard for like two years. Yep. And it turns out it totally worked. Uh, once the Xenox showed up, Xavier was prepared to unite all of humanity's minds into a big laser bolt of pure humanity mind. And that took the Xenox out. So it worked, and apparently he kept that chamber. It is still here, and here is where we are in X-Men number 54, Inquiring Minds. Written by Mark Wade, penciled by Andy Hubert, inked by Dan Panosian, colored by Joe Rosas, and lettered by Richard Starkings and Comicraft. And this picks up immediately after the last issue we covered. As we've said, you could not just be following only one of these comics at the time. So... We start with Cyclops and Cannonball commiserating about Xavier being kind of a dick today, when they're almost knocked over by the other X-Men charging straight out to battle Juggernaut, whom Gambit and Bishop, now conscious, have let them know is on the mansion grounds. I feel like the X-Men are overdoing it a bit, like Gambit throws a charged card right past Cyclops' face, forcing him to dodge out of the way and fall the hell over. I could see doing that if Juggernaut was, say, in sight, or even if you knew where he was at all. But they're just running around trying to find him. It's like in one of those shooter games where you just hold down the shoot button all the time, regardless of whether there are enemies on the screen. How else is Gambit going to knock a hole in the wall for them to get through? Oh, that's a good point. They don't have time for doors, so anytime there's anything nearby, they have to blow it up before they get there. Now I'm just picturing them moving around like the game Muscle March. Oh man, just leaving, like, X-Men-shaped silhouettes broken through every single wall. Right, but everyone after the front has to pose the same, and then there's a polar bear for some reason? Listeners, if you've never played the old Nintendo Wii game, Muscle March, well, uh, I guess you could if you wanted. Probably hard to find these days. It certainly exists. So, off they go. And I do want to point out the art here. So we went from Matarera to Cubert. 
Wolverine looks way different. He looks way more animalistic in Qbert's art. And maybe that's just because everyone looks exaggerated in Matarera's art, but he's in this horrifying animal man looking mode right now. He uh also will soon have his cool bandana. We'll we'll talk about that. So they talk about what to do, aside from blowing up everything in sight. And Cyclops says, you know. Professor Xavier has a lot on his mind right now. Maybe we just split the team up, search for Juggernaut. Gambit, maybe could you blow fewer things up? No? Okay, don't worry about it. And uh, we'll see how it goes. So, I don't know, what do you think is going on here, Jay? Is Scott suspicious? Is he genuinely just concerned for his mentor and father figure? I'm gonna go with both. Professor X is acting weird, and he's being a dick, and he's being a dick in ways that indicate that he may not be firing on all cylinders right now. Um, Cyclops has been the field leader of the team, honestly has led the team for longer than Xavier has at this point. So, I feel like it's entirely reasonable for him to just take point on this. But at the same time, they've always been really careful about checking in with the professor, so yeah, I mean, I, I've also got a more prosaic reason which is that he's got a psychic link to Jean, and even though she's shut off that stuff, she hasn't told him about the Professor Xavier stuff, it's reasonably feasible that some of her unease and suspicion about him has just bled through. Absolutely, and that's about to get a lot worse, because Jean and Juggernaut head into the psychic-proof Xenox chamber. And speaking again about art... This place is cool. Not just the look of it, but the staging. This enormous chamber is just full of all these monitors and computers and strange machinery, and everything is gigantic, and the place is dark, and it's mostly empty. And Jean just pulls up an office chair so she can sit next to Juggernaut and read his mind. And that just makes everything else in the room look more overwhelming and soulless by comparison. So there's just this one locked chamber, which we can see all of. Did Professor Xavier just not poop for years? Maybe that's what one of those machines is for. And Jean then freaks out. Not because of the toilet thing. Well, okay, not just because of the toilet thing. But because she realizes Juggernaut left the chamber door open. Was he raised in an anti-Xenox barn? I mean, possibly. No, he was raised in the Xavier Mansion, we know that. It's true, it's true. Not not this part of it, though. Uh, also, like, since when is it his job to close the chamber door of the chamber he knows nothing about? Come on. But regardless, she does shut the door, and all of a sudden, Scott's psychic link with Jean goes suddenly dead. It is broken off because that room is entirely telepathy-proof. He's trying to figure out what's going on, and he is. Th- this is the thing that gets him upset and concerned enough to go to the professor. But everyone else keeps hunting for Juggernaut, including Iceman and Dark Beast. And, of course, Iceman and Actual Beast are like BFFs. So Iceman's all like, man, reminiscence. Dark Beast's like, yes, I remember the time when we fought the Juggernaut together. He keeps getting stuff wrong over and over and over, and it, I'm, I'm reminded of nothing more than the oft-repeated Arrested Development line. I've made a huge mistake. Yeah, Dark Beast is not happy to be here. Like you said, he's a despicable, despicable person, so, like, it feels great just to mock his misfortune. Yeah, like, these are the natural consequences of his actions. Right? So, like you said... 
Cyclops does go talk to Professor X, despite Jean having been suspicious about doing exactly that. And when Scott explains what's going on and mentions the name Onslaught, Xavier's eyes go wide. Now, Xavier has been doing something on his computer. He's specifically been researching Franklin Richards. But when Scott brings that up, Xavier says he can't remember what he was looking up or why. Franklin Richards, as you may recall, is the young, not perpetual Moppet, because he's a teenager these days, but Moppet for decades, son of Mr. Fantastic and the Invisible Woman from the Fantastic Four. He's got ridiculously powerful mutant powers that sometimes are on and sometimes are off. Like we mentioned in the cold open, in an alternate future, he hooks up with Rachel Summers. It's a whole thing. He's also an on-again, off-again mutant, but at this point he's a mutant, so we're just gonna, gonna run with that for the time being. Exactly. But yeah, Xavier can't remember why he was researching Franklin. And then when Cyclops tells Professor X about the juggernaut, Xavier gets real cold and tells Cyclops that the team needs to deal with the juggernaut definitively. This is genuinely eerie. Xavier is clearly not okay. He's just fluctuating unpredictably between kindly if concerned and cold and almost cruel. And uh, you really get Cyclops' anxiety. Like, it, it comes across beautifully and terrifyingly. Later on, alone at night, Xavier ponders his recent failures. He was unable to reform Sabretooth, Psylocke almost died, Logan devolved, he erased Magneto's mind, and then the news reminds him of Graydon Creed's presidential campaign and, and Dennis Hogan's killer from X-Men Prime, screaming about how he'd do it again. And as the narration tells us... And it is finally too much. For the first time in memory, in one colossal burst, Xavier the Stoic releases all the rage and anger that has festered within him all his life. And when he does, in that one horrible instant, he finally, suddenly, realizes the truth about... And the page turns to a close-up of Jean, yelling, Onslaught! She knows who he is now. And she panics. She tells Juggernaut to run, but as soon as he leaves the chamber, the mansion is this, like, M.C. Escher meets Hogwarts tangle of staircases that leads to Xavier's office, and in that office, everything is smashed, and Xavier's yellow hover chair is overturned and half-embedded in the wall, which is a hell of an image. Xavier himself is apparently gone, but Onslaught is there, and he rips the gem of Sidorak right out of Kane's chest. Juggernaut is a big, muscly dude, with a kind of over-the-top, if rather brown, costume. And he looks so normal next to Onslaught, next to this enormous, hulking, spiky, red and purple, almost robotic figure. As he tells Kane, That's it, Marco. Bimper, beg for my mercy. Do you realize how long I've been waiting for this moment? All my life. It's an incredible page. Kane is on the ground and suddenly he is just emaciated, drowning in his gigantic costume, clutching at his chest. And as Onslaught holds the gem up in the air, the gem of the demon lord that gave Juggernaut his powers when he found a gem in a cave, it was a whole thing. 
but superimposed over Onslaught is this evilly smiling Professor X in the exact same position, translucent. Oof. Okay, let's talk about the gem thing, though, because this is weird. I know we've talked about this on the podcast before. The gem was its own separate object in the past, right? Like, just a gem that was sitting there rather than a gem inside Kane Marco's chest cavity? It's varied, but I thought it was, like, I thought it was latched into his costume. Sometimes there's, like, a red dot, but I didn't know if that was the gem itself or just part of the costume. The gem was definitely separate at one point. Like, I know later in an issue of Marvel Team-Up, the Juggernaut throws it into space after he tries to give half of his power to Black Tom Cassidy as a birthday present using the gem, and it doesn't work out really well. But, like, also at some point, it ends up with this random little boy who finds it when it falls back to Earth and absorbs it. Maybe he keeps it in his belly button like a Norphin troll. Oh, that could be. That could be. Okay, again, I say, canon. Nice. And telepathically, after having done this genuinely horrific thing, Professor X calls out to his students. X-Men, this is Professor Xavier. Please give me your utmost attention. And he calls them in. Come to me, my X-Men. One touch I like a lot. It's not word for word, but that is not that far off from the very first page of the very first issue of X-Men, as Professor X calls the original five in. Oh, you're absolutely right, and I didn't catch that at all. Oh, it is a hell of a parallel. Like, we often talk about whether big references in X-Men are earned. You know, like, if you're going to reference, say, the Dark Phoenix saga or whatever— And I can't believe I'm saying this about Onslaught. I think this is earned. I think referencing the first page of X-Men ever is earned here. Yeah. Again, early Onslaught is solid. It is. And as much as it was a total accident, Lobdell choosing Juggernaut as Onslaught's first victim, think about it. It works. Think about the first person to have instilled that much frustration in Professor X. Well, aside from Professor X and his stepfather, Kane's dad. But yeah, it's the juggernaut. Of course, he would be the first major target of this psychic entity created by Xavier's frustration made manifest. That brings us to Onslaught X-Men number one, Traitor to the Cause. Written by Scott Lobdell and Mark Wade, with art by Adam Kubert and Dan Green, art assists by Pasquale Ferry and Art Tiber, color art by Steve Bucciolato and Tim Buse, lettered by Richard Starkings and Comacraft. So Kubert and Green are doing the X-Mansion pages, and Ferry and Tiber do the tie-in pages. And we start with the professor having summoned all of the X-Men to his study. And Jean, of course, knows he's Onslaught at this point, but she's not telling anyone, and she's trying to retain the element of surprise. She's trying to keep him from realizing that she knows it either. One touch I really like here, as she's thinking about all this to herself, which is very convenient for we, the readers, I like that her thought bubbles have these thick red borders, which is a great visual representation of them being especially shielded, of her thoughts being especially armored. Yeah, yeah, it's a really nice detail. And the professor speaks, giving what turns into one hell of a villain speech. I made a mistake. A simple, tragic mistake. 
An honest mistake, but a mistake nonetheless. I believed in us. I believed that if we, as mutants, comported ourselves with pride and dignity, if we somehow kept the humans from dragging us through the mud of their genetic insecurities, that we could forge a better world for all our races. I believed that by taking humanity by the hand, we could lead it like a frightened child out of the darkness of ignorance and into the light of the millennium rising. But, as I've said, I was wrong. Look around you, X-Men. Look at the tragic mess the world has become while we've sat here in the safety and comfort of this mansion, convincing ourselves we've been doing some good. Where once mobs were content to simply chase a mutant down and incarcerate them, now the humans are beating our kind to death in the streets. Now they seek to justify their petty cowardice by hiding behind the threat of the legacy virus, apparently either unwilling or unable to accept the reality that the disease was genetically designed to decimate the homo superior populace alone. Not that other less enlightened mutants are doing anything to help our cause. Both sides escalate the conflict every day. For every murdering pack of gene nationals, there is a newer, deadlier sentinel in mass production. For every exodus and acolyte and emplate, there is an executioner or graded creed or zealot member of the Friends of Humanity. But all that changes. Today. I have decided it is time we take control and resolve these problems once and for all. God damn, Mark Wade. Turning 90 straw into onslaught gold. There is a lot of declamation in this issue. You know, given that Onslaught will eventually be revealed to be Xavier's dark side combined with Magneto's dark side wrapped in a big red and purple Magneto gigantic candy shell, that seems appropriate. Oh, absolutely. And we get some of that almost immediately because it turns out that Jean's attempt at subterfuge was entirely in vain. And Onslaught at this point reveals not only himself, but his relationship to Xavier. I was forged within the crucibles of his fear, his frustration, his rage at the injustice he saw perpetrated against his people. I was nurtured by his every darkest desire for revenge, for control, for power, incubated in the suppression of those emotions. I am all of that and more. I am an onslaught which, once unleashed, cannot stand abated. So it's interesting, he goes back and forth between referring to Xavier in the third person and correcting himself to the first. And furthermore, 
when Wolverine finally, finally points out, like, hey, don't you think this guy looks kind of like uh, Magneto? What with the looking like Magneto? Onslaught can't handle that. He even starts to say Magneto at one point himself and stops himself. So that internal conflict, that good versus bad side of Xavier, that what the hell is going on with Magneto, that comes across and onslaught is incredibly powerful but onslaught is clearly fighting himself almost as much as he's fighting the x-men yeah why do you think he's so reluctant to acknowledge magneto so that's a good question we'll later find out as we alluded to that onslaught isn't just professor x's dark side it's also the dark side of magneto that he accidentally pulled out when he turned off magneto's mind at the end of x-men volume 2 number 3 as personified by a creepy little silhouette elf. It totally is, yeah, it's an evil little elf. It's an icky elf! Like, two people are going to get that, it's going to be great. Anyway, it's not known, at least by me, whether that Magneto bit came in before or after. I've heard some people say that that was a justification later in the crossover for why Onslaught was just so damn evil, that the writers didn't necessarily want to fully character assassinate Professor X, they wanted to have some outside influence that excused Xavier's own actions to an extent. At the same time, though, clearly there's some Magneto stuff going on here. I'm not sure. I honestly like Onslaught much better as just Xavier. And the idea that Magneto's trappings are what he takes on when he when he adopts this persona makes a ton of sense to me. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. And we're going to play a little bit with that contrast in the crossover. Like, Magneto's not around, but Joseph, who at this point we think is Magneto, is. So there will be some stuff with that coming up in some number of episodes. We'll see. There's a lot of Onslaught. Oh, so much. Now, he decides he's not going to kill the X-Men yet, he's just going to freeze them in place, because he's still holding out hope that some of them are going to join him, although the only one he's e- who's even considering it is, is the opportunistic Dark Beast. How much of that do you think is Dark Beast wanting to be on the winning side, and how much of it do you think is him just realizing that his plan was terrible, and immediately jumping ship to literally any other plan? Oh yeah, he wants out. Yeah, I feel like if somebody had just showed up at the door of the X-Mansion and was been, and had been like, hey, we're looking for people to flip burgers at the local fast food place, uh, we're, you know, we had somebody quit, and Beast would be like, yep, yep, I'll join you, uh, see you later, X-Men. Yeah, there's an alternate version where Dark Beast runs off with the Fuller Brush Man. <laughs> Another deep cut, very nice. Well, once the team is all mobile again, thanks to Gambit blowing up the floor, which is a very Gambit thing to do... They get moving because, holy shit, if Onslaught gets to Cerebro, everything is fucked. And as they're destroying all the files, Onslaught returns and brings with him some wildly Magneto-esque declamation. Can you feel it, my X-Men? As I scream a thousand silent screams directly into your minds. Know me, know my pain and anger and frustrations over what you have done to me. Fear me, for I am he who was Charles Xavier. Tremble before me, for I am the onslaught. I opened the doors to this 
my home, because I believed you would stand by my side in this our finest hour, that together we would make the world a better place. And now, when at last we stand poised on the cusp of success, you waste time baiting me, betraying me, doubting me. Then hear, X-Men, feel my fury, taste my wrath, know your greatest fear, the power of Xavier's mind, unleashed! So, ordinarily, I have mixed feelings about extremely all-over-the-place stylistic lettering where you have font sizes changing intensely in captions, where you go into, you know, title fonts, where you've got sound effects worked in. Sometimes it works, but when there's too much of it, it can be distracting. On one hand, the lettering, Onslaught's lettering, is all the hell over the place. On the other hand, it really works for me. Because Onslaught is a lot of things, but what he is more than anything else, more than he is evil, more than he is crafty, that motherfucker is dramatic. Absolutely. You are totally right. And not only dramatic, like, dramatic because he is multiple selves in one entity. He has multiple sets of conflicting motivations and desires and loyalties and fears and loves. And so, of course, he's going to be all over the place in every respect, including lettering. Well, he's also two dudes who love to give speeches. Yeah, yeah, he is. Two dudes psychically hate-fucking inside a red and purple tin can. With the rest of the team down, Jean manages to get to the Xenox chamber, and she tries to make contact with the other teams. And this is actually the scene that opens the issue. And it's where we get, for the first time, the full version of the recording of Jean Grey that Bishop finds a hundred years in the future in Uncanny X-Men 287. In number 287 half the words were staticked out, like it was a low-quality recording, so we didn't get any of the important stuff. And you can hear that version of the speech in our episode 193. And here, Lobdell and Wade fill in those blanks. They play a very deliberate version of Mad Libs, and they show us the bits that were staticked out. Of course, back in 287, none of this was intended. This is a pure 1,000% retcon. The mansion has sustained massive damage. I don't even know if this transmission is being received. If you can hear me, you need to know what happened here. The X-Men have been hit hard. Worse, we were taken totally unaware. Both teams, Blue and Gold, have been decimated. There technically aren't Blue and Gold teams at this point, but that was in the original, so it's gotta be here. Jean's stressed out, maybe she forgot. If you respond to this distress call, be advised that mansion security has been deactivated from within. As hard as it is for me to say this, you need to know, we've been betrayed by one of our own. Incredible as it sounds, Professor Xavier has gone insane. The most powerful psi on the planet is no longer in control of his mutant ability. And near as I can tell, Juggernaut was the first to die. 
I'm the only one left standing who can make this message, and he's seen to it that my power's negated. It's our own fault, really. After what I saw in his mind, we should never have trusted that there were no after-effects from Professor Xavier shutting down Magneto's mind. We knew so little about the psionic damage that would result from... Wait, I sense... He's here! Thankfully, so are the rest of the X-Men, alive and well, despite Jean Grey having given them up for dead, kind of like that one time after the volcano base fight. And they all confront Onslaught together. Now, Onslaught has already made it clear that he owes his plan to Bishop's Age of Apocalypse memories. He wants to make a more benevolent version of that world, basically, and now he rubs Bishop's nose in his failure to catch the X-Traitor, who is, of course, Charles Xavier himself. And Bishop responds by doing exactly what he came back to do, by preventing the X-Men's death by absorbing an energy blast that should have wiped out the entire team. This narration right here had me freaking standing up and grinning ear to ear, even reading this issue again. 100 years from this moment, the X-Men will have been murdered, betrayed by one of their own. That's what would have happened, if not for the determination of one man. A man who, in an instant, in a single act of self-sacrifice, throws himself between the forces of destiny and reality. And that is the culmination of everything Bishop's life has led up to. That's what it's all been about, this right here, this moment. I feel like it's incredibly short-sighted to assume that he has permanently prevented Onslaught from killing the X-Men. It's true, but he at least prevented, like, the first time that might have happened, which is something. And the fact is, it's so dramatic and badass and heroic that I don't even want to overthink it. It just makes me very, very happy. So temporarily defeated and burned out, Onslaught retreats to lick his wounds and to conspire with Dark Beast. And elsewhere in the world, the Sentinels awaken. One word on their metal not exactly lips. Onslaught. Oh, that's gonna be a whole thing. Kind of a dumb thing, but we'll get to that. Meanwhile, in New York City, little Franklin Richards has an imaginary friend. In fact, he's been seeing this kid from Fantastic Four 414. His imaginary friend is named Lil Charlie, and if you guessed that he's actually a creepy psychic projection of a creepily intense kid version of Charles Xavier who wants to control Franklin and his powers then you guessed right. Remember, parents, always listen to your kids' silly stories, because your kids might be telling you about an impossibly dangerous psychic entity. Also, people keep on talking in the scene about how Franklin is drinking milk despite the fact that he is clearly drinking orange juice, and it really bugs me. Seriously! Like, they keep talking about it, and it keeps being drawn, and it's orange every time. And that just makes me think maybe it's gone really, really, really bad, and I'm so grossed out that I can't fully pay attention to the scene, even Lil Charlie's amazing Professor X giant eyebrows. In Midtown, Nate Gray shows up at the Avengers Mansion. He's come to them for help because after fighting Holocaust for three issues, Holocaust had finally bragged about how his boss, Onslaught, was totally going to come after Nate. So Nate figured he should go get some help. Um, now, after some brief skepticism, the Avengers decide to at least check out his warnings about something being very wrong at the X-Mansion. 
And we leave off with a to-be-continued everywhere, because this is where the event gets really, really big. It surely does. And we will be covering so much Onslaught, gentle listeners. And we're going to have so many questions, like you do. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, Does the little crest that's sometimes on top of Magneto's helmet have any special significance, or is it just a costume design flourish? So I've seen some people talk about how maybe it's supposed to be a stylized version of that traditional U-shaped magnet, which I would like to remind all of you listeners, Magneto once drove around in a flying car shaped like a U-shaped magnet, which is awesome. But honestly, knowing that Jack Kirby designed Magneto and looking at Kirby's art in general, if I had to guess, I would say it's probably just a cool-looking, not particularly thematically meaningful symbol. Like, it could just as easily have been a bunch of the random circles that Jack Kirby liked to draw in people's costumes so much. Question, though, for you, Jay. Do we like the symbol being its own thing, the way it was early on, a separate component of Magneto's helmet? Or do we like it better when the shape is sort of merged into the dramatic, spiky frame of the face hole in the helmet, the way it is in more modern versions? Ooh... I'll acknowledge that the merged design is objectively probably better, but I do kind of love Magneto having his own little hood ornament. I know, right? Uh, In Earth 94823, by the way, uh, Magneto does not wear a helmet with or without that hood ornament. His helmet, instead, is a football helmet. And that, thanks to the multiverse, is actually canon. Adam Reck asks on Tumblr, Oh, hey, Adam. If either of you were in charge of the line at that point, would you have made Onslaught the answer to the X-Trader mystery introduced with Bishop? If not, what would have been a better story to tie it to? I feel very, very strongly about this. And specifically, I feel strongly that the X-Trader should have been Bishop himself. And I can think of a couple ways for this to play out. One would is that he would have been under control of Mount Joy or the Shadow King, but a better way to handle that, I think, would be to have him trying to stop one of the two of them who had irrevocably taken over the rest of the team. Okay, so then with Jean running away and making her There's a Traitor recording, would she have also been taken over, been trying to fool people, or would she just be unaware that Bishop killing the team was actually a good thing, not a bad thing? Well, it's not exactly a good thing, but an unavoidable thing. Gotcha. Yeah, nice and angsty. Honestly, I think for me, that's what you gotta do. You have to have it be angsty. So, I don't know, you could have had the X-Trader have been Logan, who killed the team against his will, although that was kind of done in Enemy of the State, and kind of also done in Old Man Logan, so maybe a third time before then wouldn't have been necessary. But the thing is, if it's a deliberate traitor, if it's somebody who's just twirling their secret mustache in between panels and mwahaha-ing about how they've gained the X-Men's trust, that is what we call in the role-playing world a player punch. Like, that reminds me of what happened with Zorn. You know, we came to love Zorn, and yes, I know Grant Morrison always intended Zorn to really be a bad guy in disguise, but it sucked when that happened. Like, I was genuinely upset and mad, and that wasn't justified by the plot twist, I didn't think. One of the ways I like to do betrayals is the way it was handled with Gambit. Not with the X-Trader storyline, although obviously he was implied to be the X-Trader himself, but I like what we're going through right now, where Gambit's got a dark secret, and he's trying to cover it up because he's so worried 
that his new family will abandon him, that they won't realize he really has changed his ways despite having done something so horrible. So, yeah, yeah, I agree. It's got to be something involving deception, and I think your bishop idea is a really good one. We are a fully listener-supported podcast, and certain levels of support come with on-air acknowledgement by various fictional characters and concepts. Take it away, Angry Claremontian Narrator. Bold of you to assume there was a system to any of this, A.D. Jameson. That it was more than the discordant ramblings of minds long unstrung. That Jim Darling was more than a MacGuffin from the start. Now, at least, you know better. And you can join the rest of us in staring in despair as everything dissolves into inevitable, irreversible entropy. Ouch. And with that... Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York, and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter, who also arranged our theme music. You can find more of Matt's work at moon-talk.bandcamp.com. New episodes of our show come out most Sundays on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for visual companions to every episode and original illustrations by David Wynn. Our onslaughty show is 100% listener-supported. It's all your fault, listeners. If you'd like to help us stay in the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, as you might expect... Onslaught continues. Onslaught <laughs> continues.